And now to introduce today's presenter. I'm delighted to host Dr. Dan Sager, director of the Providence Hood River Arthritis Clinic and a graduate of the OHSU rheumatology program just a mere 30 years ago, thus bringing a wealth of clinical experience. His interest in medical education as well as global health has led to a clinical decision support methodology designed to improve the experience of managing diagnostic complexity. Later this month, Dr. Sager is off to Pakistan for presentations and workshops on this general subject of diagnostic reasoning. But the impact of diagnostic disorientation and resource utilization is as keenly felt in Oregon as anywhere else. And with that, today's presentation. Thank you, Dr. Sager. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lecher. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, thanks for coming to the in-person component. Um, it's really nice to be back at a podium uh, instead of sitting in my kitchen giving a talk to a virtual audience. And to those people that are uh, watching virtually or even tape delay, I'm so glad you're uh, tuning in. And really, I hope um, the talk has uh, context for your personal situation. Um, that's always the uh, the key thing is whether there's a need to know. Um, this topic is dear to me because, uh, a little bit because of the stage of my career, um, at some point in time, you grow a little bit fatigued from the uh, the idea of giving a talk on a subject, for example, on lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or or gout or whatnot, where you dive into the details and and uh, a little bit of the diagnostic details and also the management details. Those things are of interest to learners at the early earlier stage of career, and then they're of interest to practitioners because the Materials changing a lot. The uh, the information is constantly moving, but one thing that is sort of consistent and uh, practical for uh, for all learners um, is the concept of the big picture. And in my work as a clinician in Hood River, um, the one thing that is uh, missing sometimes from the from the interaction between myself and my patient or between myself and the referring uh, clinician is the big picture rather than so much the details. So um, this talk is really um, focused on uh, clinical decision support, looking at the big picture. For example, I don't know who among you at one point were interested in car talk on, on uh, NPR at click and clack to the Tappet Brothers and whatnot. So these are these are master diagnosticians. They're diving into the details of a person's broken vehicle. And between the two of them, with a lot of humor uh, and with a lot of experience, um, parsing out the answer for the car owner. So that type of master diagnostician stuff um, is is certainly interesting and it's very fun to have a master diagnostician like Gurpreet Dhaliwal from UCSF or someone like that stand in front of you and listen to a case and sort through it. But what's missing from that type of thing is translation to everyone, to medical students, to residents, and to uh, early uh, practitioners. Um, 
to understand exactly how they're getting that diagnostic work done in their own head. In other words, they've developed over a long period of time a lot of illness scripts, a lot of exemplars in the world of automotive medicine. And that's true for um, uh, people who are experienced in their own practice, and particularly it's true for specialists or subspecialists. They develop uh, a familiarity with the illness scripts so that it's quite easy for them to step in to a complex patient uh, situation and parse it out in terms of the diagnostic reasoning. So what I thought was, why not just make that more available? Why not make that um, stuff that is in the head of an experienced clinician or a subspecialist more available? Is it possible to make it more available? And would, what are the benefits of that? What are the efficiencies of that for the learner and particularly for the patient? What are the efficiencies of understanding the playing field and not just uh, being a, a listener to that. So the objective of my talk today really is to provide you um, a method or a methodology, or even you could call it a tool or maybe even a menu for rheumatology, um, for how you look at the big picture. Um, if you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you're hungry uh, and they come to your table, that's what they give you is a menu. You can't really function until you know what the restaurant can provide. And so every specialty, dermatology, neurology, rheumatology has a menu essentially, and the people that practice within that specialty become very familiar with that. And so that then facilitates their capacity to help the patient. So I'm gonna to try to translate that for you uh, in your own personal context, whatever that might be. Um, my acknowledgements are, are sort of brief. I, I do want to thank Dr. Uh, Lecher again for this opportunity. Um, she and I share a friend, uh, uh, the late uh, Richie Wernick, some of you may have known. Richie influenced my work a lot, as did Steve Campbell, who is still as involved as a volunteer rheumatologist at Prop Portland. Um, a lot of these thoughts have to do with uh, their influence. So, one thought I'd like to share is that patient-centered care is really a coin with two sides. The empathy side is often emphasized for good reason. Understanding caring is essential. Uh, otherwise, the work becomes cold and, and, uh, and a little surgical. But, you know, I think you, you have to understand your patient. But on the flip side of that coin is accountability to the diagnosis, especially when the diagnosis is, of course, not yet known. So the diagnostic accountability has to do with this whole area of diagnostic uncertainty. And diagnostic uncertainty is part of our regular life. It's a, it's a natural uh, thing that we have to accept. But to be accountable to that diagnosis is really important to patients. In other words, to try to resolve it. So I find that those two things have to be uh, dealt with in tandem. Um, whoops, this is not uh, progressing, guys. We had a little bit of a... Huh. Yeah, this is a little bit of a glitch here, maybe. There's another bullet point below that. I think you just have to click on the mouse and then... Oh, just click the mouse? Yeah. How did you make that happen? 
She just woke it up with the mouse. Ah, okay, okay, good. I oh, gotcha. Thanks. Um, so th this uh, idea of CDS for rheumatology is about leveling playing the playing field between all parties. Um, and um, the second part of the talk, I'll introduce this uh, CDS uh, tool that um, is really anti-algorithmic in its in its design, and I'll describe that more to you. So in terms of definitions, um, orientation is really just being aligned with other parties involved. And a lot of times in, in what I call diagnostic disorientation, the patient is not aligned with the clinician or the primary care clinician is not in line with the subspecialist who's doing the consult. Um, and ultimately, those types of disorientations are, are limbic. Um, and this idea of limbic amplification of illness is hugely impactful in rheumatology. You probably have some experience with this yourself with patients. Um, the limbic system is tuned into uncertainty. COVID pandemic is a great example. Um, the limbic amplification impacts all sorts of disease features and complicates interpretation of the disease. Um, and so that has to be controlled for the sake of health um, and for the sake of economics, because a lot of this diagnostic disorientation drives our testing behaviors and our energies about those types of things. So a sample patient, this is actually one of my patients or one of the consults I've seen not too long in the past. This is the first and most important symptom for this particular person. I'll describe why in a minute. Um, hidden almost underneath everything else was neck and back pain. And then other stuff came on um, as this person remains sort of, you could say, undiagnosed, or at least in the person's mind, undiagnosed. Um, in the patient's mind, they started to have other symptoms, and then they started to develop other diagnoses and other thoughts, um, other symptoms, more diagnostic, diagnostic thoughts, um, some of which may have been uh, a stretch, more symptoms, more symptoms, other diagnostic thoughts, tests, positive tests, other concerns, other things added on, and, 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 and a lot of diagnostic disorientation. So to try to clarify the term diagnostic disorientation, which is not in the literature, I, I'm not familiar with any uh, use of that term. That's something I sort of have conjured just because I was trying to find a way to say it. Um, to dis distinguish it from other things that are given a lot of attention in the literature, um, for one thing, misdiagnosis and error. These things are commonly described as uh, because of their impact. For example, a missed diagnosis could have a highly negative outcome, a death, and error accounts for something like you know 98,000 deaths a year in the healthcare system in the United States. You know, extreme numbers like that get a lot of attention. Um, diagnostic dis disorientation can be about a misdiagnosis, of course, uh, and in a way it is but not really focused on the most adverse uh, outcomes, unless limbic amplification is an adverse outcome, which it is in many situations, and sometimes dramatically adverse. A second distinction is waste and overdiagnosis. Those terms are also given a lot of attention, something like um, a trillion dollars of, uh, of uh, medical waste is reported 
in the United States per year equal to the entire budget of Medicare and Medicaid and more than the federal defense budget. Um, but most of that waste is difficult to track to us. It's administrative redundancies and other types of things. However, the choosing wisely movement is about you know, not doing tests that are wasteful like MRIs in the wrong context. So there is some of that in our control. And then the overdiagnosis, preventing overdiagnosis movement is another sort of, you could say, waste uh, area that uh, diagnostic disorientation is not directly addressing, but indirectly if influences is influenced by those things. Instead, it's really about the, the uh, issue of uncertainty. So there's an art of caring for people when there's uncertainty about prognosis or about diagnosis, certainly. Um, uh, th th a lot of that is sort of uh, um, teachable. Um, but what I'm talking about today is uncontrolled uncertainty or disorientation. Um, why is there disorientation? Well, the, the reasons are, are pretty simple to get to. I mean, there's a lot of complexity in healthcare and there's a risk of oversimplifying things in my talk today. Um, these are some of the pressures that that uh, you all face um, in in healthcare. Um, but another problem is that our paradigm for for uh, teaching and developing skill is based on memory. It's based on memory for illness script exposure. These are sort of scenarios that you've seen and then you sort of build those up in your head and you have those in your differential or worse they're made they're based on textbook memory what you learned in school in a lecture or something of that nature you went to a, a talk on lupus and you remembered a few things but these things are inherently incomplete and gets to the point of needing a, a clinical decision support tool so we can get information we can go to up to date i, I use up to date all the time as you do and other tools like that but you have to get oriented first to use up to date really efficiently and sometimes even effectively um, so there's a lot of evidence that disorientation plays a role out there in our culture um, this is just one study um, where patients were actually two studies where patients were describing to the interviewers you know their lack of trust and these are some of the areas that um, uh, academicians emphasize um, have not been adequately addressed. So today's talk really looks at the patient experience, the clinician experience, maybe the cost of care, although that's not uh, evidence-based in, 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 in uh, my situation. Um, and many calls for improving models of delivery. So if you read JAMA, it's, wonderful reading, it's full of calls for innovation, uh, but no innovation, which is strange. Lots of smart people talking about this stuff, but not much innovation when it really comes to what is going on in the clinic, in the room, at the bedside. And I think that speaks to this division between academics and your community-based program, which is really, you know, faces reality uh, when you when you're in the hospital at the bedside, this has to be uh, linked to reality, our our innovations. So again, more evidence of disorientation. Uh, amazingly, this this poster presented now eight years ago showed that one tenth of the population of the adult population of Spain has had a rheumatoid factor. That's disorientation. Um, what about in the United States? Um, 
there's a prevalence in this one study of, you know, 14% of our adult population are ANA positive. That's disorientation. And then only one third of patients or less actually of with who have uh, back pain with HLA B27 have ankylosing spondylitis. So we're, it's really hard to sort things out in other words. So here's a, a typical patient you'll probably see uh, tomorrow, 55 years old, widespread pain, other symptoms. Uh, much of it is subjective, but you know, who knows? Uh, the patient said, once I had a rash, you take a review of systems, do you have a rash with your joint pain? Well, I had a rash. That's a very common thing. Let me show you a picture on my phone. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then I threw in the low on vitamin D thing just as a nod to the recent publications showing the incredible overuse of vitamin D screening. It's understandable. There's a lot of symptoms out there to try to sort out and vitamin D as an explanation for a lot of problems has been emphasized uh, too much. Um, and now we know that vitamin D screening is in, in the laboratories a massive industry, and that's disorientation. Um, so this patient says it's just one thing after the other and no one knows what's wrong, despite opening up care everywhere in Epic and seeing five bars of data, five different hospital systems, multiple images, multiple labs. The patient says no one knows what's wrong. Well, we may know what's wrong in our own head, maybe, or we have our own ideas. Um, so, you know, if you want to know what's wrong with somebody, you have to ask, actually have, have to ask them. And you have to be like this with your patient. You can't be like this with them. So the clinician says, what do you think is wrong? The patient says, I have no idea. So that's disorientation. Um, if this is rheumatologic, uh, you could you could uh, approach the same thinking in any specialty, but if this is a rheumatologic uh, situation, uh, you ask yourself what strategy or aid do you use to help get oriented? And also what are your pressures to move to testing? Um, why not just have the computer do it for you? Well, people have tried, this is artificial intelligence stuff, uh, but this slide is just to emphasize the fact of complexity, lots of diseases, lots of overlapping symptoms. Um, we want to feed this to a computer. This stuff gets hard. Um, being wrong is not fun. Um, being right is a little bit risky because sometimes if you're right, you end up being wrong. You're right in your own head, but it's actually wrong. So the idea of answer is even risky. Um, so all of this gets to cognitive load theory and building a, an architecture for how we uh, help ourselves. Um, you know, you if you go to an outer space, you put a helmet on with oxygen inside you. There, there are ways that human beings need uh, uh, augmented intelligence, probably not artificial intelligence. Um, so these things have to be practical. They have to be thorough because if they're incomplete, there's risk. Uh, they have to be thorough to the degree possible. Um, you have to have these things transparent to your patient. Um, and ultimately, they have to be shown to have uh, measurable outcomes. So questions for you to ask yourself. Um, and you can just have that in mind a little bit as we go through the rest of this. So here's Steve Campbell saying, he used to say, when a patient says, well, what do I have? Steve would say, well, you have what you have. And the patient would get angry almost. Um, 
And then he would just reflect it back. It's a mirror. You know, if you have a headache, you have a headache. They questioned what could I have or, you know, what it, what are the causes of headache is a whole different thing. So sometimes it gets back to just something that's simple. You have what you have. Um, but for patients, they have to understand what you mean when you say that. Um, and Sir William Mosler said, you know, you have to listen to your patient and they'll give you the diagnosis. But that's if you have illness script development, highly developed, if you're Gurpreet Dhaliwal or something. And that's not possible when you're in primary care uh, to to have that level of uh, quick recall for illness scripts, unless you practice that as your career, really. There's too much, there's too much knowledge out there. So a uh, recent uh, talk given by Dr. Dollywall emphasizes several of the things that I'm trying to sort of encapture with this clinical decision support tool, which is, you know, lump things together a little bit. Um, so for altered mental status, you know, there's four or five categories. You can just put that, put your thoughts into categories. Um, it's impossible to have a hundred categories. You can't remember that. So four or five categories. Um, and then he talks about um, thinking outside the box um, and becoming increasingly confident. So you have to get outside of your thoughts a little bit. You have to have a bigger view. Um, he says patients don't have to read the textbook. I think what that means is uh, going online to try to figure it out yourself is as a patient is really a stress. And things of this nature, um, parsing out the clues. And uh, I like this one at the bottom, he says, unless I had forgotten something, this is toward the end of the case, as he was sorting through it with the presenter. He says, unless I have forgotten something, if you eliminate hypotheses one through nine, then 10 is the answer. So it's not like there is no answer. 10 is the answer. So one main concept of my comments today is that 10 is the answer, because if you leave it no answer, then you're in limbic territory and you're at risk for uh, amplification. So essentially, a patient has either this or they have that. So if, if choice A is fibromyalgia, you know, with all of its difficulty, what's choice B? Could they have something instead of fibromyalgia? And if they don't, then they have fibromyalgia. You have to have evidence for choice B to say it's not choice A. But to say it's nothing doesn't work. Um, you could also uh, apply to this slide, um, staying open-minded and using time to, to make this a functional uh, way of thinking uh, diagnostically. You have to be open. Um, so here are three key concepts. Start with what's possible. So this is the menu at the restaurant. Um, I call it a field guide if you're a bird watcher and you go to uh, the Olympic National Park, there is a limited repertoire of birds in the Olympic National Park. And there's a field guide that will tell you every bird that's in that place, unless somebody is discovering a new bird. But if, if you don't start with what's possible, it's really hard to get to what's probable. Um, and CDS can fill in the gaps both for teaching um, like when residents are presenting a case, CDS is really a nice tool for a resident to present a case because they see the big picture and then they can put that case within that big picture instead of just presenting it in space almost. Um, so I found that very useful for resident presentation, for efficiencies in clinic. Um, it's great for communicating with patients. I use it all the time in my personal practice when there's no student around, just me and the patient and the patient is 
not sure if they're on board with what I'm telling them. I say, OK, here's the menu. Where are you on this menu? It could be off the rheumatology menu, possibly. And then you have to have evidence for that. But if it's in the rheumatology menu, here's the menu. And then the patient gets on board with you and you're on the same playing field and you go forward with productivity. It helps with testing and calibration. So two points, possibility, probability um, is really how you um, get started. Uh, call it a field guide if you want. Um, this is a uh, PRQ for using a field guide. Um, what's the structure? What's the method? What are the alternatives? What's the what are the risks and limitations? Um, and really, what's the need to know? Because everyone coming from a different place um, in terms of their need to know. Originally, I thought this CDS would be an app because I was interested in international and global health and mobile apps and carrying some phone around in the in an area of uh, resource limitation where the doctors needed to have quick access to uh, CDS. Uh, it's not yet, it's mocked up, but not yet an app, and I'm not sure it should be. Um, but there are four platforms to using this, uh, this method, uh, including mimics and tests. Again, it's pattern recognition. You could call it illness script, illness script comparison. You start by looking at the phenotype, big picture. If you need to, you open the book, you dig into epidemiology or sensitivity and specificity. You got to be careful about these things. Um, you know, adverse outcomes are possible. You don't want to be too quick to your thoughts. And then you got to lump it. Um, so, you know, these are five main categories that rheumatologists think about when you send them a patient. Patient walks in the room, you sit down pretty quickly. They're deciding this is non-arthritic pain or this is some sort of, you know, connective tissue disease or this is an oddball. Um, this is sort of how we think. And we can share how we think with our students um, and with our colleagues, and then we can be more effective in our work together. So these five categories can then be divided into three. Uh, in the far left side, lupus with Sjogren's and idiopathic inflammatory myopathy with dermatomyositis included, and then scler systemic sclerosis, forms of scleroderma, to give you an idea. Vasculitis can be divided into large, medium, and small vessel patterns. Arthritis can be acute or chronic. Acute's important because of gonorrhea or septic joint or even gout. Chronic is, you know, generally rheumatoid pattern or spondyloarthropathy pattern. Uh, sorry, chronic is inflammatory or non-inflammatory, like OA, and then inflammatory is rheumatoid pattern, spondylo pattern with the differential or non-arthritic pain. So for example, fibromyalgia would be in the realm of neuropathic pain. And then these can be subdivided. This is the final subdivision. Now, this doesn't give you any practical doctor level information. So this is connected to a PDF. And the PDF is basically what the app is mocked up to operate with. So you can swipe or zoom in, zoom out type of thing to each of these terms, but it gets back to gets back to starting and then building an architecture for how you think through your patient situation. And if they don't align with your thoughts, if your patient is on a different page, this really helps everyone get to the same page. So you throw in probabilities. There's possibilities, then there's probabilities. These things are uh, things you're very familiar with. Um, 
there's different types of hallmarks to these patterns, these phenotypes. And um, you can sort of parse it out a little bit as you go. Here's just another way to look at uh, hallmarks um, that might make you think about vasculitis or connective tissue disease, more so than rheumatoid arthritis or spondylopathy or gout. There's some overlap. So, you know, simplicity is for getting things done. Complexity is for enjoyment. If you want to, if you have the time, and much of the time you need the time to dive into New York City and find the details that are that are of interest, but if you're lost, you got to back out and find out what, uh, get your get yourself oriented. So I'm not going to belabor this too much. It's on a PDF. Um, asking uh, these four clarifying questions, particularly for patients who are in pain, um, I find very useful. Um, and again, you don't have to have this uh, too much in mind just now, but um, think about it just a little bit as you go through it. Um, trying to sort out where in the big picture your patient fits. Um, many patients say, um, I've had this pain for five weeks. Well, it turns out five weeks this time, but they had it for five weeks before. A lot of times I ask patients, have you ever had anything else like this? And they say no, because what they mean is it's never been this bad. You know, so patient's history is going to mislead us as much as it helps us. The patient will tell you what's wrong, but you have to have this high index of suspicion, as you know. Um, and these questions help me when I'm with a patient um, sort it out. I, I also like residents to use these questions when they're presenting, or because then this is the type of information I need if I'm listening to the presentation. Um, again, it gets back to the menu. You know, these questions clarify where in the menu, where on the field guide uh, your patient is. Um, and very importantly, what else um, is the bigger picture? Are there red flags? Is this even at a basic level a syndrome instead of a, an objective disease? Um, and uh, you know, are there are there clues? System one, system two thinking just tucks right into this stuff. Um, the fast thinking is you have a lot of illness scripts in your memory bank. You walk in the room, you notice the patient can't turn their neck and it's, they're a relatively young patient. And you think, well, he's got back pain. He can't turn his neck. He's relatively young. He hasn't been injured. He probably has ankylosing spondylitis. So pretty quickly, you know, you can, you can diagnose things if you have experience. But if you're not at that level, you, know, you have to start with, well, does this person have some, does he have meningitis or does he have something else depending on your context? But, you know, if you go overseas and work, um, in resource limited settings, ankylosing spondylitis is in the ER, you know, with a flare up, and the guy can't turn his neck, and it looks like meningitis, you know. So um, things get more complicated, obviously, than just the rheumatology world that I'm describing today. But um, in general, once you're sort of thinking rheumatologically, then you can sort of use this tool. Um, mimics are really all about prospective hindsight. Uh, I like the question of what if, or what if it is something different? What are the adversities? Where Where is my uh, cognitive reasoning short? Um, it's really important to be meta, uh, metacognitive, you could say, and to be uh, self-critical on your own thoughts. Um, that's all about the mimics, but mimics require evidence. It's not just like a differential that goes on like this. You have to have evidence for those things. Um, to really be substantially influenced by it. 
but mimics are possible and, you, and, they, and they include drug side effects or drug withdrawal syndromes or nutritional deficiencies or in my world because of pain, neurologic things sometimes um, and cancer. You know, these are, these are the things that may be infections. These are things that influence our worry about mimics. But again, it's evidence uh, that really uh, you, you have to rely on. And then finally, tests. So this is Richie Wernick's stuff, um, all about Bayes' theorem. Um, you know, pretest probability determines post-test probability, and without pretest probability, without that big picture view of diving into a whole bunch of tests, is really potentially disorienting, as we've shown with some of these slides. So you know, really, you want to be well-oriented and then test. I like to teach the point: um, it's easier said than done that you share with your patient, you know, what are we gonna do with this result before we get it? Um, another thing that I like to teach is don't have your nurse tell the patient the result of a test. I mean, even an x-ray, because tests require interpretation and they require the context of the pretest probability. So if, you're, if you get a bunch of tests back and you're too busy and your, patient, or your, your, your nurse calls the patient, and says your tests are normal, your tests are abnormal, it's really just, it's really not great. And so uh, how you organize that patient communication uh, is super important and, and also just understanding it. Um, nurses are really important partners. Once they understand that, then they can take on a lot of that role. So these are what I call the five best tests. Uh, instead of ANA, rheumatoid factor, CCP, ANCA, and whatnot, um, these are pretty much don't require a lot of interpretation. So when you get these tests back in a complex patient and they're all normal, you're not done. It could still be something super serious, but you now are looking at a person who's pretty healthy. Um, the reason I've got the uh, Indian sari there on this slide is because I was in, I was in Calcutta, now called Kolkata, India. Um, quite a few years ago with uh, two residents from uh, Good Sam. I think it was about 10 years ago now. But anyway, we were there for a month. It was super difficult. Um, and on one of the last days, we were, I was on rounds uh, with, the, with the general medical team. All the patients' beds were occupied. Then two to a bed, then on the floor beside the bed, and then in the hallway, it was like, you know, our pandemic. It was just a normal day at the teaching hospital in Calcutta. And the hallway patients extended to the staircase, which was a circular staircase that wound up this hospital's ancient colonial hospital. The center freight elevator had long since broken and was now just used as a garbage repository. It was extraordinary type of uh, environment. But Laying in the hallway in the circular staircase was a woman in a sari who for all the world had every bit of evidence for fibromyalgia. And she was laying there and she refused to go home. And the team was frustrated. And since I was a rheumatologist, they said, well, maybe you can figure it out. So I went over there, I interviewed her through translation. Patient did not look ill. And I, I told them I, in, in a sheepish way, I said, I think she has fibromyalgia. And they all looked at me uncomfortably because they don't recognize that. 
or have a lot of it in their community. I think it's mostly they don't recognize it. So we're having this sort of awkward conversation about what she had and what to do. And I said, well, what labs have been done? Lots of labs have been done, but not a CPK. And her CPK was 10,000. And so the whole energy shifted like it would in our own patients to like, okay, now we have to understand why the CPK is 10,000. So just as a reminder that um, these five best tests are helpful, but often normal, and we waste a lot of money doing tests. It's not that other tests don't matter, they do, but th those are the important ones. Okay, what about osteoarthritis? In, its, uh, in our society, fibromyalgia is the limbic stuff. Osteoarthritis is the epide epidemiologic stuff. It is the common thing that we see uh, in Western populations in a rheumatology clinic. The patient exemplar I gave you, a 55-year-old patient who's got pain and fatigue and paresthesia and weakness and loss of function, often, usually, has osteoarthritis if you view it as a spectrum. If you just view it as how bad the cartilage loss is on the knee x-ray, different story. But if you view osteoarthritis as a spectrum of, of collagen and cartilage change, including the intervertebral disc and the meniscus, and then the rotator cuff tendon, and then the trochanteric bursa, and then the sciatic nerve, and then the more generalized neuropathic stuff, and then the muscle pain syndrome, and et cetera, you start to understand that a lot of our disoriented patients have osteoarthritis. Getting back to the case, neck and back pain, and then this expansion of complexity, um, many times getting out of this uh, boat uh, of disorientation is recognized in the spectrum. So here's a paper from Ontario, Canada, first time referrals to a rheumatology clinic, average age was 53. Um, what, they, what they did was they looked at, you know, what are these patients coming to the clinic for? And the majority were for common ordinary things. But I'm suspicious that what this paper did not look at was the disorientation that went with this. And so they got referred. Um, the patient demanded the referral because there was lack of resolution of why they were having all this trouble. Or the clinician just like ran out of time. This is too complicated. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even gout and pseudo gout. It was these other common things. And then more importantly, perhaps, is pre-referral testing for all the patients, not just the ones with inflammatory disease, was really high. And this is in Canada, the socialized country, right? So, you know, a third of them had a SED rate. Uh, these are all the patients, not just the, uh, the people with OA and not just the inflammatory people lumped. Uh, a third had a SED rate, almost half had a rheumatoid factor. And then if you looked at the people that were found to have systemic inflammatory diseases, the numbers were not that different in the percentage with pre-referral testing. So they said rate was just a little bit higher, the rheumatoid factor is a little bit higher. So disorientation. Um, what about a workaround? Just, okay, it's too complicated. Let's not do it ourselves. Let's have someone else do it like a lab. This is a modern advertisement um, for a lab that will help you figure out what connective tissue disease your patient has. This is really risky stuff. I was at the uh, American College of Rheumatology annual meeting about four years ago, 
and there was a tent. It looked like a religious revival meeting. There was a tent. I'm not kidding. Drug or lab sponsored tent packed with rheumatologists um, with an enthusiastic speaker talking about this type of lab. And I ducked my head in the tent like what is going on in there? Something I should be aware of. And I picked up on the fact that it was one of these things. And the point of my story is that later that evening I was at like a med ed workshop, you know, which was squeezed out to 8 p.m. or something at the end of the, the day. And there was like 20 people in the room, you know, like 10,000 attendees at the meeting, like 20 people. And the whole talk of the workshop, the med ed workshop was on diagnostic reasoning and all these smart people talking about all these great things. And I look around, like, no one here. They're all in the tent. So, you know, here's the problem. This is not vitamin D, but it gets to that. So look what this slide says, overlapping symptoms make things difficult. What are the symptoms? Myalgia, fatigue, stiffness, headache, of course, ANA positive brain fog. So these are people who usually have OA or spectrum or limbic or a mix and not lupus. So this then says, okay, get this CTD test. Um, here's the 800 number. Who should get it? Patients who might have a CTD. Patients who are ANA positive, patients with overlapping symptoms, ANA and fibromyalgia. I, it, to me, this is, this is just money making. This is more interesting. This, this I was part of this um, paper published now many, many years ago. Uh, Steve Campbell and Richie Wernick and myself and other rheumatologists were at a meeting with Peter Lipsky. He, he, he was a bigwig from uh, UT Houston and went on to head the NIH in some way. But he tried to put all of rheumatology into algorithms. And this is published. You can get a copy. You can keep it on your bookshelf. And it's super interesting because he tried to like take the entire world of rheumatology and stuff it into an algorithm. Uh, I don't think people use that. Um, here's uh, artificial intelligence uh, results from Harvard's DXplain and Isabel. These are now 10 years or more old, and they don't score fives. They score three and a halfs on a one to five scale. So that's like you and me. Okay, so anyway, uh, risks of uh, CDS coming to the end here um, are, you have to have the need to know. this. This will just sit on your shelf or sit on your phone um, unless you have the need to know because the need to know is like a type of pain. You feel the pain and then you've got to do something about the pain. So I've seen the need to know in residence uh, in the teaching clinic, in the rheumatology teaching clinic at Good Sam, like where I taught for 10 years. Uh, and this helped them with the pain. It made it more fun. It made it more fun for them. It made it more fun for me. Um, it helps you go forward. There's a risk of oversimplification uh, for sure. This does not replace other medical education. You can't use this as a lay person with no medical knowledge without getting into some trouble, I think. And so the same is true for us. Um, it doesn't replace behavioral health care, which is a huge, huge issue. It's not pediatric, uh, although it overlaps extensively. It requires a ton of practice and it needs some data. If anyone wants to do an ACP, poster, if you guys want to do a, a, a controlled trial in your residency clinic using 
CDS against standard against uh, current standards of practice. You could do a paper and, and get data. I have data on two in two sites. Uh, one was in Eldoret, Kenya, and I would call it a negative study. Uh, it, they said it helped them a lot, but in Eldoret, Kenya, the faculty, not just the students, their level of understanding of rheumatologic diagnosis was so undeveloped that this was actually too complicated for them. They needed to understand actually just how to do some basic things. Um, so, you know, they're HIV pros. They know everything there is to know about HIV. But when it comes to rheumatology, they have almost no teaching, almost no exposure. Their patients are almost ignored. And so I found that to be uh, not super rewarding in a very resource deprived setting, even a medical school in Kenya. Um, the other negative study where I have the other data set I have is in Hood River with uh, family practitioners, busy mid-career doctors in private practice. Pretty much a negative study. At the end of the study, um, the take home point for me was, Dan, we're just glad you're here in town so we can get our patients to you. You know, we don't got the time. We don't have the incentive. We're not paid to do this. Um, our patients are asking for you. They know you here, you're here. So, you know, if you build it, they will come. You make an MRI machine, everyone wants an MRI sort of thing. So I'm in Hood River, so I want to go to rheumatology. So, you know, that was sort of a negative study. The need to know is small. But when you talk to patients, the need to know is not small. And I think in some uh, settings, uh, this, this, uh, uh, would not be hard to show uh, evidence uh, against a control population. Okay, um, that pretty much is it. I'll just summarize. Um, rheumatology allows for orientation to probability through the key first step of comparing and contrasting what's actually possible in the first place. That's the menu or the field guide. It provides a diagnostic reason, reasoning platform um, to communicate between you and your patient, between you and your resident, between you and your subspecialist. Um, it determines or determining diagnostic probability is complementary to empathy and helps you with a positive uh, clinical experience. Um, that is the last slide. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Appreciate it. Many thanks, Dr. Seiger. Um, I'll be monitoring for questions to come in from our online audience, but perhaps we'll start here in the room. Thanks, Dr. Seiger. Um, I love the idea of aligning with the patient and being oriented in the same direction including even sitting next to them with our knees pointed in the same direction as we give the bad news that this is fibromyalgia. And I'm just curious as I think about some of my own patients, sometimes I feel that it's limbic and my patient is not able to hear that or accept that I think this is their trauma, for example, that is presenting in this way. And I just am curious in your experience as a specialist, can they hear it from you? Uh, what do you say when you think it's limbic? 
um, any tips for us in primary care? Love the question. It's almost a whole nother talk um, to try to address that. I'll try to put it in the context of this. this. What I do is what you do, which is I acknowledge their problem. I um, I tell them that I usually don't use the word fibromyalgia because it's so loaded um, for some people. Um, and I get to the limbic stuff indirectly. And I've used this field guide concept to ease into it. Um, I have a psychiatrist friend from medical school. He's a retired psychiatrist. I don't know if you know Jim Phelps. He's in Corvallis. He does a lot of teaching with their um, osteopathic school down in, in that area. But Jim, uh, Jim and I spend a lot of time together. He's retired, so he has, he has time to spend. And he has a sailboat, which is a really good place to talk about these things. But, but anyway, Jim, sa Jim says you cannot replace somebody's foundation I'm sorry, you cannot remove somebody's foundation, their cognitive foundation for their own body and their own life experience. You cannot remove it without replacing it with something first. And so I think for patients, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, bad stuff that happens when the doctor's in a hurry to sort of quickly uh, try to replace or even to explain. So I think I do the, I, what I try to do is to do the explaining indirectly by sort of showing them a field guide, a menu, uh, the big picture, uh, you know, and I say, well, could it be a connective tissue disease over here, column one? Well, could be, your ANA is weakly positive, uh, whatever, you had a rash last week, um, your joints hurt. Okay, you know, if it is, what are we gonna do about it? You know, first of all, are we sure? We're not going to give you an immune suppressant because that's, that requires being positive. You know, Imuran or mycophenolate or Benlista or, you know, whatever, even prednisone maybe. So, you know, you ease into it. And, and then you look at vasculitis. That's pretty quick to get past that um, if their rash wasn't a vasculitic rash particularly. And then you're at arthritis. You know, where's the evidence for the arthritis? Well, my knuckles are tender. Yeah, but are they swollen? Well, they feel swollen, but that's different. If you go out in the cold and come back in, your hands feel swollen. If you walk too long, your hands feel swollen. You know, you can sort of talk about vasomotor stuff. You ease into it, and then you slowly get their confidence, and you do it in a non-defensive way, which is really hard because your physician self is wanting to be defensive. Like, I'm the physician. I'm, I'm now getting defensive against your attitude that you have lupus when I don't think you do. And uh, you, you try to do it in an undefensive way. You try to ease into it and you try to build some foundation underneath that. And then a lot of that is just acknowledging the reality of their situation. I use the analogy of headache. I use the analogy of depression. I mean, these things are as real as anything. You can jump off the Fremont Bridge and die with depression. So I, you know, um, there's a lot of importance in acknowledging. Uh, and then if they're 55 or 45, sometimes 35, uh, I really get suspicious about the spectrum of osteoarthritis with their disc. And I explain to them how that can be uh, uh, an amplifier for neuropathic mechanisms that get into this limbic stuff. The limbic system's all about uncertainty. It's all about survival. 
and pain is a major trigger in the brain for limbic activate, activation. Because if you think about it, Tila, uh, if you think about evolutionarily, you're, you're, you know, a saber-toothed tiger is going to get you if you can't get across the street fast enough. Um, so, you know, because you hurt or, you know, your legs give out or, you know, so it's, it activates survival things. So you can be very empathetic in that regard because you're now talking about people's natural response to uh, things rather than something that's aberrant, like behaviorally aberrant. I think it gets behaviorally aberrant and certainly adverse childhood events and other be behavioral pathologies promote fibromyalgia directly. Anxiety particularly, but pain can promote it. So fibromyalgia is a common overlay to osteoarthritis is my point, and rheumatoid and lupus and Sjogren's, you know, so I use those types of words and tools and techniques and tricks to try to get aligned with the patient. And, and sometimes I literally get out a piece of paper and I draw out, a, I draw out what's possible because it starts with that. And if people are really locked in on something that they feel is probable, but it's just possible, not probable, then you got work to do still. And, you know, sometimes you get into a log jam and you have to get back up. Great, thanks for your answer to another complex topic. Um, other questions in the room? Thanks so much for your talk. I, um, you made a point about, uh, you know, tests require interpretation and sometimes um, not just delegating all results to your nurse or your assistant. Um, how do you deal with that? in the age of the Cures Act, where now the patient now is getting the test results even before you've had a chance to see it. Tests. Those five best tests are, are if they're off, if they're great, you got to sort of understand why. But if I'm ordering serologies or if I'm ordering even a uric acid level or an x ray, um, I try to emphasize before they leave the room these tests have to be interpreted. We're going to try to do that with you. We might be able to do that with text messaging, or maybe you're going to have to have another visit if it's more complicated. Just keep that in mind. Do not bite the worm. If that worm is dangling in front of you, you know, just leave off it and let's talk first and that type of thing. But as to your point, they come in with a test already, or you're sort of behind that eight ball, um, then the nurse is complaining to me. They're saying, ha, ha, help, you know, too much for me to do as a nurse. Um, and so I try to be understanding of that. But you, if you have a regular nurse that you work with, or an MA that you work with regularly, they can, get, they can get good at this and become a really important team team member. But I'm not sure if that got to your question. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think sort of 
doing some pre-work with the patient before the result comes out is really helpful, especially, you know, in this day and age where sometimes, you know, the patient has a result even before you've had a chance to see it. I, I don't know if you can answer this, but I do mean it as a as a very real question in terms of putting the menu out there and trying to provide a foundation. I'm curious at your level of expertise and thinking, how quickly can you do that? How quickly can you do that? And I, 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 I'm really interested. Is this always a very long discussion because you're the consultant who finally gets the time and... and Is your question, how quickly can I get to get through the menu? Get to the menu or get the answer, like get the diagnosis. How quickly can you um, describe the menu? Oh, get this. Yeah. Something yeah. They think is probable. Yeah. And you think it's only. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a really good question, and that that should be studied because that's such an important factor. I mean, there's no time. There's it's time management. So if this is a if this is a time management tool, like an efficiency tool, home run. If it's a time sink, strike out. So I feel like that's that has to be studied and hasn't been studied. I I don't I don't really have your answer. It's not for me because I use it a lot. It's not super laborious, and sometimes I touch on it very abstractly. I don't get out a paper and. When I'm really pressed, though, and somebody's saying, you know, hey, uh, going to go to the Mayo Clinic or something, I go, okay, you know, but let's slow down. Let's think about this. Let's look at this together. I use that type of language, but most of the time, I touch on it abstractly. I, that, that there's, you know, there's just limited choices, and within that, if it's rheumatologic, within that, using time as a test. Using metacognition so we don't get, you know, uh, anchored anchoring bias. Um, I, I share those terms with them. I share those words, and uh, and I think it's it, I'm helped by being a subspecialist. It's the artificial world of the subspecialty. So you know, my interest really is not this topic in a subspecialty context. It's this topic in a general context, in a teaching context, and in a internal medicine context because that's where this, I think, has more power. But I use this rheumatologically. Oh, by the way, thank you for your question because it triggered another thought in my head about the menu, the PDF, the website is rheumatologycds.com. However, if you go online through Providence, it blocks you because my son, my son built this website quite a few years ago. And he used free software. And Providence, it's probably software that gets abused by other industries. And so Providence blocks it. And so you can get this on your iPhone by just dialing in rheumatologycds.com and go to the PDF and you can print the PDF and use it. Um, uh, but you cannot do it through Providence. Sorry. I had a chance to clarify that part. Great. Thanks for the clarification on that and for helping bring hopefully some diagnostic reorientation, especially to this largely primary care crowd. So thank you, Dr. Sager.